So one of the things I talked about with my uh, group of friends, uh, uh, other Buddhist teachers, in other traditions, we have really been our, our peer group for 20 years now, is what are you teaching now? What are you teaching now that's different from 20 years ago? What are you doing now? We actually talk to each other about when you sit down, what do you do? <laughs> and it's very interesting. People do different. I mean, no, but nobody says I, I sit distractedly. <laughs> but everybody's got different things that they do that are meaningful to them, that they feel help them achieve what they hope is achievable. And what we talked about is what do you think is achievable? What are we doing, actually? Um, how did I want to start? I wanted to. I, I, I did want to start by what did I? What was my retreat like, and what did they teach? And so, what my plan is for today, and if I don't finish for next week, is to use as a general overall framework the 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 outline of that retreat which the five teachers who were teaching had uh, mapped out for the four weeks. And they used as the structure to teach from uh, the structure of the Brahma Viharas, equanimity, metta, uh, compassion, and uh, empathic joy. And in that order, you know, the, the buildings are in a different order. The buildings are uh, uh, loving kindness, compassion, empathic joy, and equanimity. And I, I was happy to see that they changed it and said, we're doing it this way because we think equanimity comes first. And I thought, yes, right. <laughs> it's a really a wonderful thing to sit on retreat with all the people that you teach with, who are your colleagues, and listen to them teach. They're brilliant. And I don't have to say anything. I just listen to them. It's a pleasure to listen to other people talk. Marty was there. Who else was on that month-long retreat? Anybody else? Donald was on the month-long retreat. My friend Roger Walsh was on the retreat, and Marty was on the retreat, and 80 other people were on the retreat. But it's different when you know people and you go by them. Isn't it different, Marty? You go by and see, oh, there's Marty, there's Donald, there's Roger. And if they're not there in their places where you get used to seeing them, like if they're not in the Qigong or they don't come to a meal, you think, where are they? You know, you don't think that about everybody who's there, but even you're not looking at anybody, and nobody would know that you're checked up on <laughs> Donald and Marty <laughs> and Roger. <laughs> you do know that they're there, and they're keeping you company. So uh, they, they put equanimity first, and they, and they said, which is, I've said that here, it's not, it's not a whole new thing, that it, I think that the main thing that allows, I'll start it this way, I think that the, the capacity of the human heart, the state of the human heart-mind, which in the Pali language is one word, it's not a mind and a heart, it's a beingness, uh, an essence, I think that the state of the human mind-heart, when it's untroubled and at ease, is good-willed. I just think so. I think our, we're strung that way. I don't think as a species we would have made it if we are not fundamentally inclined to nurture and to take care of ourselves. We're a herd animal. We hang out with other people. We're not, uh, we, we make clan groups and we care more about the clan group maybe than an outside group. But we do have an inclination to care outside of ourselves for our, uh, for our family, our community, our people. We have a nurturing gene, I think. And I think, it's, I think we don't have to take compassion 
classes usually that we have, or friendship classes that we're by and large when we're not troubled. If we don't have problems with our neurology, when we're not troubled, I think people are amiable. Hi, how you doing? Can I help you? Uh, we help each other. So not all the time. There are, when we're self-preoccupied, when we're worried about something, we don't see what's going on outside. But not worried and at ease, I think we're good-willed. So I, my fundamental premise, and my, my, what I keep confirming for myself in practice, is when my mind is at ease and my body is at ease, I really have a, I have a, what, uh, what my grandparents used to call in Yiddish, a good heart on other people. You see people and you just feel good about them. Your mind is not picky about them. That uh, it has a lot of more room for people to do things that you say, how quaint, look at that. You know? <laughs> That's really interesting. Look, that person took a huge, long, big plate of food. They must be really hungry. I'm glad they have that. <laughs> Or, oh, my, you know, whatever it is, you don't, it's not such a picky mind. You ever notice some days your mind is like on edge all the time, finds a little problem with everything? So it's a mind that's not looking to pick a fight. It's like the, the opposite of a mind that's looking to pick a fight. It's looking to, to avoid a fight. And after a while, it begins to feel so good in a good mood like that because it's very pleasant. It's good... Um, it's good, um, what do you call it, uh, uh, biofeedback loop. Maybe it makes oxytocin or something. Because after a while, you're loath for the mind to pick a fight with something. Like you, you, uh, the, the negative thought comes in the mind and you think, hmm, you say, wait a minute, you want to do that? You know, it's, it, I, I have a book somewhere on a bookshelf of years ago. I don't remember the book, but I remember the title called, you can't, it was called, you can't afford the luxury of a negative thought. I think it's true that a negative thought, however juicy, did you hear the news about so-and-so, so-and-so, it messes up your mind. <laughs> it, doesn't, it does not exalt it. It doesn't pick it up. It's much better to feel like the bodhisattva of compassion than it is to feel like a gossip columnist. You know, it just, uh, it's, a, it's a more picked-up mind. So I think that the idea of uh, thinking of practice for myself as allowing the mind to relax, doing what I need to do so that my mind and body feel safe and at ease, thereby allowing my natural goodwill to manifest. Another way to say it would be liberating my mind from all its habits of, um, habits of impulsive response to what's going on, there's a habit of not liking or a habit of lusting after to just let what's going on go on, not interfering with it. I got an, an email yesterday from a meditation group in uh, uh, Brooklyn, New York. I'm on their, uh, I'm on their uh, list. So I hear everything that's going to happen in Brooklyn, New York, although it's not likely that I'm going to be there all of a sudden. But Norman Fisher, who's a friend of mine, is involved with the founding of it, and I'm interested in what they do. And they are not only mindfulness vipassana practitioners, they're, uh, they are um, Zen practitioners, many of them. And it's a meditation community, and they're Jews. So it's the Brooklyn Jewish Meditation, Mindfulness Meditation, something like that community. So uh, yesterday, I got an email, yesterday was the last day of the Passover. 
Passover celebrates the liberation of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, which we interpret in our modern time as uh, the liberation of the mind from all of the habits that hold it hostage and uh, cause suffering and create suffering. So yesterday, on the last day of Passover, I got their listserv email and it said, so, are you liberated yet? <laughs> and as I thought to myself, that's actually the ongoing question. Because I actually think that for myself, it's not an experience of having become liberated. It's, a, it's the ongoing experience of feeling liberated from all of the habits that create suffering, and then suddenly becoming bewildered again. I love the word bewildered. Because the story is, and the Israelites wandered in the wilderness. And I think about bewildered as wandering in the wilderness. We accidentally step into a wilderness. And we can step, a wilderness is one event away. Somebody says something, and the mind says, grrr, and gets mad at it. And all of a sudden, you're in a wilderness of recrimination and uh, revenge. And I'll get back, and I'll just say, and uh, the way... Uh, this is what I wanted to start by reading you a verse from uh, 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 The Empty Boat by Chuang Tzu, who was a Taoist poet. Uh, well, I'll read you the verse, then I don't have to explain it to you if I read you the verse. If a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his own skiff, this is a boat that's become loose from its moorings, you know. If a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his own skiff, even though he be a bad-tempered man, he will not become very angry. But if he sees a man in the boat, he will shout at him to steer clear. If the shout is not heard, he'll shout again and yet again and begin cursing, all because of somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, he would not be shouting and not angry. It's part of a much longer poem. It goes on to say, if you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. If you can see that everything that bumps into you in some way in your mind or into your body that disturbs you, didn't do it, uh, we say they did that on purpose. They did it because it happened. It happened because it happened. And it, and it couldn't have been otherwise. Say, well, but he meant to. That he meant to happened, and it couldn't have been otherwise. That everything is motivated by what happened before and what happened before and what happened before. Doesn't mean you're supposed to be delighted about getting buffeted by on purpose or by accident. Buffeting is buffeting. But to be able to have a mind that says, look what happened, wow. And I, I'm sorry this happened, what should I do now? Rather than get mad, which compounds it, makes it worse, and clouds your own mind. That's the, really the important thing, that any response other than, hmm, look what happened, I wonder what I should do now, clouds the mind. A response that says, that intervenes in an impulsive way, clouds the mind. I heard a great, what I think is a great definition of equanimity from Gil Fransdahl, who was one of the teachers on this retreat. I probably have said many definitions of equanimity over the years. Equanimity is the ability of the mind to keep itself more or less balanced moment to moment as life goes on. 
It doesn't mean tranquility. It means equanimity. It means it doesn't get toppled over. It means it doesn't fall over. Gil said equanimity, he thought, was um, the ability to know uh, in any moment, especially one that's startling in some way. Hmm. So this is what is happening now, implying. So this is what it's come to be, because which implies is everything that happens has come to be. So this is what's come to be. Hmm. I wonder. Let, let's see. Uh, this is the line I love. Let's see what happens next. Mm-hmm. I love that. Let's see what happens next. It's such a uh, a sensible thing. You know, something happens. There's the impulse to jump on it and do something about it. And equanimity would not mean no response. It would mean, let's see what happens next. Let's figure out what's happening. And let's figure out a wise response. It also implies that a human being could do that. Say, well, I'll I'll just see what happens next and what I should do next. I'll know. I'll wait to see what happens next, and I'll know what to do, if anything. I'll know how to respond. I'll be able to think things over. Doesn't mean think them over. In, I'm, I'm really thinking of moment to moment. Think things over. Wow, that just happened. Lust arose. <laughs> I, I heard somebody. Somebody's ninety-seven, and they just had a great, great. And lust arose, and I started to do the arithmetic. I said, wait a minute, someone else is talking. You'll do the arithmetic later, listen here. That's just, the lust arises, you notice it, and you let it go, and you do something else, and you stay current with what else is happening. Something happens, and you don't, you're startled by it. You don't have to do anything. uh, We have to respond to everything. It doesn't mean a, a passive life. But sometimes a response is a non-response. Sometimes it's a response that's thoughtful and considered. I was wondering if I was going to mention the turkeys. Uh, you, you see the turkeys around? Have you not seen the turkeys? We have turkeys here. Seriously, I thought on the retreat, if we didn't have the turkeys, if they disappeared, we would have to go find turkeys and bring them here because they're a major piece of the Dharma that unfolds. There's a herd of turkeys or a flock or whatever, a her- flock, I guess. And there are, the best I can count, they move as a flock, eight women and five men. And the women, by and large, are quietly pecking away all the time. And the men are flurrying up their tails and their wings. And I, I feel you listen to them. They, they actually you hear them moving along because when they poof out their tails like that, they, their side wings all go down. They're like ailerons or something. They keep them from falling over, I think. And they scrape on the floor. You can actually hear their, their side uh, feathers scraping on the floor. Scrape, scrape, scrape. You hear them walking around. And mostly they just strut around, and people at the retreatants, there's not much to occupy you, there's no television, no. <laughs> and people stand for long periods of time watching the turkeys do their thing. And also May, March, I think, is the mating season for the turkeys, so they parade around and, uh, 
and the men make the turkeys make these huge, big squawks at, right outside the meditation hall is where they parade around. And then people come out for the walking periods, and sometimes they walk, and sometimes they just stand and watch the turkeys. So turkeys are parading around and doing out their tails. And one day, there actually was like a, a fight between two men turkeys. Did you see that fight? Yeah. Everybody stood for a long time watching the fight. The manager of the retreat, uh, I overheard saying to, somebody, to another manager, you think I should get a, a hose or something? <laughs> these, the, the, these two, you know, you know in jousting matches where people on horses in medieval jousting matches with, with a lance would come against. So turkeys don't have lances, nor do they have hands to hold the lances. They have, they have, they have the tail, that's all. They don't have any hands. So what they do is they poof themselves out with their whole wings out and they run towards each other without lances, and they run into each other. They just slam each other like that. And then and they, one of them falls back, and then they come again. And we're all standing there, like watching, a, like watching gladiators. It's kind of, and people are wrapped. I mean, first of all, it, I, I thought to myself, well, are we just bored? Is this, is this, you know, is this turkey pornography? Why, why are we watching? <laughs> I think the thing is that it's so compelling because at one point turkeys have no hands, and what they what they what they did they have these big mouths that they open, big beaks, and they get each other like this in the beak, and you know like people would do an arm wrestle, they don't have arms, they're doing a beak wrestle with their necks and pushing each other back and forth and back and forth, which is when the manager started to think maybe I should get a hose and. <laughs> But is it, you know, you can't, they'll run in the woods and continue. You can't be running in the woods with them and protecting the turkeys of the world. Besides, this is what turkeys do. Yeah. I thought to myself, this is a very good Dharma lesson. This is what turkeys do. And at least it went through my mind while I was watching. When, because they look, they, they, they're locked in that kind of combat. I was thinking, well, this is, this is, these turkeys have lost their minds. And granted, turkeys don't have a lot of mind to begin with. But the turkeys are clearly fighting to the death. They're not going to quit. And I thought, wow, look at turkeys. They're, they're likely, they're wired to be ready to kill themselves over a lust. And I thought, thank goodness, people are not like turkeys. But then I thought, well, you know, you know, if you think about it a little bit, how much problems people have gotten into and risks that people have taken with their lives when they get consumed by a lust. It's, a, it's maybe, a, maybe an overblown metaphor, but I thought to myself, well, you know, it, it's, it's a sobering thought. Look what can happen to you when an extreme emotion takes over your mind and you really lose the ability to reflect, is this a wise thing for me to do or not? I mean, actually, I, I thought about it a lot. I don't want to be silly about it, but... I think that, that ref if, it, if it were not so that people, we do things like we go to war. We kill other people in hand-to-hand -hand combat. I mean, that, because we are somehow so inflamed and so, uh, so uh, caught up in the idea, I need to do this, that the thought, this is a person just like me with a family who would like to have his or her, or her next birthday party in peace with their kin doesn't arise in the mind. 
And how could that be erased from my mind? And what could we do in a culture to really turn it around? By the way, the, the answer, it's not completely a rhetorical question because I, I actually am thinking about what people are now calling the mindfulness revol revolution and the fact that mindfulness classes are being started in grade schools all over the place and training in compassion and uh, is being planned in programs starting in an early age. And maybe in this age of telecommunications where the whole world can suddenly learn new techniques for discovering that you can do that with your mind, that you can say to yourself, wait a minute, this is not a wise thing that I'm doing. I'm getting carried away here. What can I do? Well, that would be a huge step forward. I mean, we could maybe save the planet. This is not a good wise. This is not a wise thing that I'm doing. In the email that I got from Nancy yesterday, she was telling me about some different kinds of challenges that she's recently faced. And I, I did write the, out that the copy out that particular phrase. She said, "But I'm cultivating contentment," and I thought that that really is is what another way of saying. I'm uh, cultivating equanimity. I like to think when I talk about equanimity that it's synonymous with wisdom, that from equanimity we can say this is not a wise thing to do, and that might be a wise thing to do. Or uh, since I'd like to re, uh, restore my equanimity or cultivate contentment, contentment means I won't do anything right this second. I'll be with how things are, and I won't, I won't be making a fuss in my mind about the way that they are. They are the way they are. <laughs> One of my friends, uh, um, clearly, this is a thing, I'm not going to say who, and I have a bunch of friends at this meeting, had had a bunch of difficulties happen on the way to uh, traveling to that meeting the other day. And at the last minute, all kinds of things happened. It looked like this person might not even be able to make it to the meeting. And in the last part of the journey, you can see I'm even hiding whether it's a man or a woman. Uh, this person thought to themselves, oh, you know, I'll get there now, but my mind is all frazzled. I'll have to straighten it out now. I'll take some breath. I'll take some breaths. And they said, hey. this person then said, my mind continued to be frazzled because it was really, I, uh, being concentrated on the breath wasn't working. And what really works is to say, my mind is frazzled. Look at that. My mind is really frazzled. <laughs> It'll probably unfrazzle now if I don't distraught myself more with the fact that it's frazzled. I think that one of the things that uh, seems to me so important now for my own understanding and everybody else's is that uh, the key thing in being able to cultivate contentment or uh, cultivate equanimity or consolidate wisdom is to be able to say that sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not there. And when it's not there, it's because confusion has taken over and we have become once again bewildered. And to not increase the bewilderment by getting upset with it. Say, bewilderment is here. Maybe it's a good idea for me not to make a big decision this very moment or not to make a phone call or not to push the send button on the email. How many people here have made a mistake on the email by send, pushing a send button too fast? 
right, responding to something and thinking, da 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 look what they said, da 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 and you write back, send, and then right away you feel bad. Or you send and accidentally you send to the wrong person. Anybody oh, yeah. ever send to the wrong person? Oh, yeah. It's a terrible thing to send to the wrong person. <laughs> I have said to the wrong person, and, and years have gone by, and the, and the wrong person who got it said, listen, it's all right, forget about it, it's nothing. But every time I see that person, I think, ah, that's the person I sent the wrong email to. But to, to really think about before you push a send button, before you... <laughs> Somebody used to have a sign over their desk that said, be... Be, before, uh, be sure to have, be sure your mind is engaged before your mouth is in motion. Yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, that I think that that's one of the reasons that why speech is one of the precepts in a category by itself. Because we speak impulsively, we act impulsively, unless we know to pay attention to the presence or absence of bewilderment. I think that the, the re, one of the reasons I wanted to particularly mention that email about cultivating contentment and to talk about it is that the insight and really the um, conviction that cultivating contentment is a human possibility. We could actually do that, and we could be content. That's a big piece of news. I mean, it's the third noble truth, peace is possible, but peace is possible is a fancy way of saying an elevated maybe way of saying it. But I don't know how many people in the world think that that's a human, no, that that's a human possibility. That in the middle of this life, I didn't know it was a possibility. That was maybe the first major thing I learned in Dharma practice, which was after I was 40 years old, that I didn't have to be pleased in order to be content. That was a major piece of learning. And until then, I, I think, I, I didn't question it. So it's not like I thought, oh, woe is me. I'm stuck in this life. I'm uncontent. I had lots of wonderful things. Nothing dreadful, dreadful had happened to me in my life. But I, I really was held in the, in, the, in the thrall of being frightened of certain things or worried about certain things or mad about certain things. And every once in a while, uh, some worry would grab my mind and grab it for a while, and I'd think, oh, I wish this would go away. And then by and by it would go away, and then something else would come. And the idea that I could do something in response to that, or I could work with my mind so that I wasn't quite so much uh, a, hapless, um, a hapless recipient of the... Uh, slings and arrows of life that uh, things keep happening and in order for and I think to be able to say things keep happening the waves of experience keep coming in our lives things happen that are wonderful and things happen that are dreadful and to be able to say you know what this is really dreadful and this is a hard time for me and I'm here I think it took me a very long time to get that that was maybe the great promise of practice. It was even is important to say when things are dreadful that feeling sad mm -hmm. is what happens. I think for a while I maybe imagined that I could do something with my mind so that things would happen and I'd be able to know, well, you know, 
these are the things that happen in life, and that somehow the wisdom this happens to everybody would prevent me from, would protect me from feeling bereft. That doesn't happen. If someone close to me dies, I feel bereft. There's a hole in the world for a while. I, I have a sense that it's not a mistake. Things happen, and I will die, and everybody that I love will die if I don't die first. And I have that wisdom, and I know that. And I even know in the middle of bereft, at least so far, that at some point bereft will pass, be less bereft. And I'll always be a little bit sad about the loss of people. But the intensity of bereft will be different. Like the intensity of joys we have will be different. In the middle of a joy, you can't imagine in life, the mind is so picked up. Think to yourself, wow. I'd look at this, look at how my mind is. I'll never be mad at anybody again. <laughs> and then, you know, or I'll never, I'll, you know, I'll never fuss about anything. Thank goodness. This has happened where, and then for a little while it can't, but no, you know, we are normal people. And the mind keeps responding to things. And it doesn't go near like that. But to know, I have a, I have a, I have a, a more or less, Dependable ground to stand on. We were talking about that in my group of friends the other day, talking about uh, equanimity as the ground of wisdom and the Buddha's unshakable equanimity. We were talking about the fact that uh, we all knew something about the experience of equanimity. And maybe I'm speaking, it's not correct to speak for everybody else, but my sense is that everybody, one way or another, was saying what they really like is unshakable equanimity. Nobody's got that, but we have more equanimity than we used to have, and a sense that equanimity is cultivatable as a, as a, as a factor of wisdom. And I, I really trust that, that I have faith in, because it's been my experience. I have more equanimity than I used to. And what I have admired in my teachers all along, if I thought about some were more eloquent, some were less eloquent, some were funny, some were not so funny, is the ones that I thought really had uh, an equanimity that was grounded in wisdom. That really appealed to me and spoke to me in some way. They don't announce that. I mean, you feel that about people. I was thinking that maybe... um, <laughs> this is <laughs> all of a sudden. This seems like a very trivial thing to say. I was thinking about, in a sense, that that uh, Dharma wisdom about don't make things worse. Maybe, maybe the basic instruction is try to cultivate equanimity or cultivate contentment, and by all means, don't make things worse. And think that that, that things are complex. The first noble truth is things are complex. Life is challenging. Things keep happening. Second noble truth is don't make it worse. I'll tell you. I'll remind you of all the Zen stories in a minute about don't make it worse. Uh, but it would be so ordinary to say don't make it worse. Uh, it's much better to say the cause of suffering is craving because that sounds elegant. But it actually means don't make it worse the situation by fussing with it. Uh, the trivial story that 
maybe maybe you have to be uh, a gra honors grandmother to think this is so cute. But uh, I heard from her mother, who's my daughter, that Honor, who was so polite that she would not have said, and very close to me, but would not have said it to me, reported to her mother about her job of putting the gefilte fish out on a platter for serving. And uh, you have to have a taste for gefilte fish. Maybe you have to be, and anyway, not everybody likes the look or the smell or whatever. Anyway, here is Honor putting out the gefilte fish on a plate. And I just said, you know, would you mind putting these out on a plate? And she was reporting to her mother, she said, uh, I'm putting out the gefilte fish on the plate. Uh, and uh, then uh, on top of that, Bubby said to me, would you take this horseradish and put a blob of horseradish on each piece of gefilte fish? She said, and I never realized till then that it was possible to make a terrible thing worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but this was a, this was a couple of years ago reporting. It's just now that Liz told me that after I had once again made the gefilte fish. She said, "You know." How old was she when she said that? About ten, eleven. Yeah. Oh. Old enough to put out the gefilte fish. <laughs> old enough to know not to say yuck. I won't do it. <laughs> But it's a thing, don't make a terrible thing worse, is it really? I thought to myself, that's what the Buddha said, don't make a terrible thing worse. Well, life is difficult enough by itself. You know, why, you know if you want to tell it you know, in, a, in, a, in an elevated dharmic way, you could tell the story about uh, uh, that if somebody stabs you with a dagger, uh, if you continue to think to yourself, uh, why? What could I have possibly done? What a terrible person. Why did they do this? Why is this happening? Do I deserve this? It shouldn't have happened. It's like you stab yourself with a second dagger. So you can tell the second dagger story. You can tell the poison arrow story. You can say, if you get shot by a poison arrow and um, you start to say, who would have shot me? I don't know anybody. I don't even know anybody in these areas. And I didn't even think they had any poison here. There's no poison plants here. How did they make poison for this arrow? Poison arrow story is one of the basic Dharma stories that you hear because it ends up by saying if you speculate about the provenance of the poison and any of that, by the time you finish speculating about it, you'll be dead. And the thing to do with the poison arrow is to remove it immediately and seek medical help, as they say on the answering machines. Go to the nearest person who knows how to do something about it. Don't make it worse by speculating, by getting mad about it, by doing anything other than addressing the, the, the fact of the pain. I have been shot by a poison arrow. Hmm, what should I do now? That's it. I have been daggered by a dagger. What should I do now? Maybe this is the same thing, don't make it worse. The monks that come to a, a muddy stream bed, and they're marching along together, two monks, and they arrive at a muddy stream bed at the same time that a woman in, this is a Chinese story, and in a beautiful kimono is approaching the steam, stream bed with a silk kimono, and one of the monks picks her up, carries her across the muddy stream bed, and puts her down. They continue on their way. 
Three hours later, Monk A says to Monk B, I can't believe you picked up that woman. We've taken a vow never to talk to women, certainly never to touch women. That's the worst. And you picked up that woman and you carried over the steam, the, 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 the stream bed. And Monk B saying back, you know, I put that woman down three hours ago and you didn't. You know, that, that you, you know, you just do, you pick up, you carry across and you continue. You don't make a fuss. So there's all these fancy Dharma stories. I don't know that they're better or worse than the gefilte fish story, <laughs> but they're the same. Don't make, don't make it worse. Um, the Zen teacher who, uh, whose child dies and uh, his students come to be with him and he is sitting in the midst of the Zendo and crying and they're surprised, and they, when they can, they say, you know, you've taught us all the time that the, the basic understanding about life is old age, sickness, and death. Everything dies. Everything that's dear to you will be separated from you. That the, This is what you've taught us all the time. And here you are crying. And the Zen master is saying, of course. He said, that's absolutely true. And I'm very sad that it's true, and it happens to everybody, does not preclude being sad. The, another twist on that story, because we tell all Dharma stories, but I want to get around to the fact that we can tell them out of old Chinese stories or Korean stories or Japanese stories, or we can tell them out of your stories, which is where we're getting up to. The story about the Zen, the Japanese monk who lived, the Japanese priest who lives up the si uh, on the hillside above a town who knock, 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 they knock, the villagers knock on his door and say, so-and-so, 15-year-old girl has just had this baby. She says, you are the father. You take care of it. You are the father. He says, that's so, takes the baby. Three years later, they come back, knock, knock, knock. The father of the child has come back and confessed and is ready to marry the mother, and so we come to get the baby back. Says, that so? And gives the baby back. So when I tell that story, I don't tell it so much because for contemporary audiences, that story is very complex. You know, what do you mean? <laughs> that, uh, you know, that you, you can tell it as, don't make a difficult moment worse. Here's a baby all of a sudden. Okay. And I've got a baby. Now we're taking it away. Okay, now they're taking it away. It's a little extreme for those of us who have grown up in a culture of attachment and a bonding with infants and the idea that five minute, one minute after someone gives you a baby and, says, and you says, says, here, this is yours, you can't imagine not caring for it with your whole life. You know, that we, we have a different sensibility about that. But still... If you understand the story bigger, it's that's happening. You can either go with the flow, so to speak, or you can make a fuss. Don't make a difficult thing worse. Are we waiting for a third part to that story? What's the third part? <clears throat> Maybe the only one here, but I thought there was a punchline and we didn't hadn't yet heard it. No, 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 no. It's, it, the punchline is, is that so? That's what's happening? Okay. Uh, it's not a satisfactory story, Mark, for most of us who have different <laughs> sensibilities. 
So I don't tell it much. Nancy, what? Well, I'm, I'm going back to the poem that you read. Yeah. I, I still, it's, it really caught me just thinking, what a wonderful thing to live in a culture where it's assumed that there wouldn't be an onus if the boat's empty. Yeah. Because here, I, I, it's mm -hmm. easy for me to imagine how quickly it'd be like, I can't believe that person didn't tie up their boat. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, really, yeah. the mainstream is so contentious. And how there you go. Yeah, that, that, that's actually perfect to think about, that we would be mad in absentia mm -hmm. for somebody, and we'd be looking for someone to sue, mm -hmm. that they didn't, yeah. but, but, but being mad about it didn't go right, and is, it would be very countercultural to say, you know, somebody here told a story, now we're going to go around to the contemporary stories, I'm hopeful that we will now, in the next several months or the next year, has a, as a communal project, making a, a, a collection of our stories, Dharma stories, is the person who told a story about my brother Miguel here today. I don't remember. I don't remember faces well. Someone told a story two months ago about uh, I went to Hawaii with my sisters and brothers, many sisters and brothers, and my 85-year-old mother, uh, and we all were supposed to take turns taking care of the mother who needed someone to take care of her. We, we signed up, we had a chart, two-hour increments. And uh, I noticed right away that everyone signed up for several, you know, filled up the whole chart except my brother Miguel, he only took one increment. And she said, I got really upset about that. And just a synopsis, the briefest is that she said, it bothered me a lot. All the time I was with my mother in my two-hour periods, I was thinking about Miguel only signed up for one. And then all the time that I wasn't with my mother and I was on my free time, walking on the beach, swimming, sailing, whatever I was doing, I was thinking about Miguel as not doing his fair share and churning up my mind. And somehow she told the story better than I am telling it now. She said, at some point it came to me Miguel didn't do his fair share. Miguel never does his fair share. That's just like Miguel to do that. It's, you know, the boat is empty. It's expecting of something that, you know, not meaning that Miguel is empty. It's like this. This boat crashed in. It's like this. Miguel doesn't do shares. But to be able to, or the person who had the boat didn't lock it up. That's just the way it is without getting mad at it. It's a brilliant thing to be able to say, it's like this. Do you remember I used to talk about Ajahn Sumedho? It was my, my best teaching from him. He said, when I get annoyed about somebody in my community, they're doing this or that that I don't like, and then I think to myself, it's like this, and I'm all right, you know? And I, I subsequently told Ajahn Sumedho, I'd gone all over the world and told his story, and I said, you had this wonderful gesture of letting it go. It's like this, and you said, it's like this. He said, I said that? <laughs> I made that gesture, but he did, and he told that story, and he made that gesture, and it changed my mind in a significant way. And um, I, I, I wish I could remember her whole name, the woman who told the story about Miguel. Anyway, the, she told the story about it in response to my having said the week before, we could all make up Dharma stories. We don't have to tell about the kimono and the muddy stream, or the this, or the that that happened a long time ago, that all of the stories, somebody said to me, such interesting things happen to you, you always have a story. 
And I say, no, no, we all are in a life. And if I said to all of you, nobody leaves today until you tell a story of so far today, something that makes a Dharma point, there would be something that you came here and there was all this building and you had a flurry in your mind. You thought, what am I going to do with my car? Uh-oh, well, I should have come earlier. I should have made private provisions for this. I should have carpooled. Da, da, da. Oh, here's a parking space. You know, that, that, and we, kind of, we find ourselves having stormed up a little storm gratuitously. And then we catch that and we say, well, maybe next time we'll say to ourselves, hmm, look what's going on here now. Let's see what happens next. You know, that would be, you know, uh, and then we could make the point, like an Aesop's fable at the end, you say, the point of this fable is, you never know what's going to happen next. Let's just see, Ace, what? I'm just thinking, do Buddhists say, if it's not one thing, it's another? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, actually, as far as I know, (laughs) no, not, wait, wait, you know who said that? Uh, uh, Gilda Gilda Radner Radner said that. In a book called, it's, there's always something. But, you know. But she said, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. <laughs> but you know what the Buddha did say? He said, because of this, that, about anything, the boat is with a, with a steersman who isn't looking, or the boat is with a person, is, has no person, and it didn't get tied up, or Miguel just didn't have the wherewithal to take his turn. Things are like they are because they are, because of this, that. It's a lawful cosmos, is what he said. When I first heard that from Joseph Goldstein, I thought he was saying it's an awful cosmos. It's a lawful cosmos. Things don't happen out of the blue. They happen for other reasons, not always human reasons, you know. If a tree falls down on you and you just happen to be there, doesn't have a human reason, doesn't have a cosmological reason. The tree limb was ready to fall down and you were standing there. And to have that kind of awareness all the time, things happen. So I thought it would be great if we each, I'm not going to have that thing about no one leaves today, but I would like very much, so six people told stories. And I said, these are great stories. Please go home and write them and send them to me on the email. And I'm going to make them into a book. I said, I'll make you a deal, you know, a package, um, a matching deal. If, if we collect 20 stories, I'll write 20 stories. We'll make a book. And I actually spoke to uh, a publishing company that likes the idea. And don't worry about it. You know, the, the two stories that I did get are really lovely written. Write me a story. I'll, I'll you know... Doesn't guarantee you'll get in the book, but probably. And by sending it, you're giving up all rights to the story. And you're not getting any recompense other than your name and so and so, so and so. And lives in San Francisco and da 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 da. And uh, I'll edit them if I need to for, <coughs> to make them more concise. Or... You like that idea? Yes. Totally. I think we can do that. I think we can do that. And I thought about telling you that as the announcement and not on the tape so that the whole world didn't hear, but then I decided why not have the whole world here and have them send in a story because they are here Wednesday morning. Everybody who's listening is here this morning. And what's more, you can send it to me at, um, you know what? 
because I don't want to tell the whole world, I'm about to tell the whole world that my email at home is sylviaborstein at gmail.com. You could have guessed that. <laughs> Most people don't, but you could have, you know. But send it to me. To send it here, it's more convoluted. Send it to me. You are giving up all the rights to the story by doing it, but we'll do a good job with it. And I think that'd be fun, don't you? Totally. How about a word count? Less than a thousand. Less than a thousand. Eight hundred to a thousand words. You can probably do it in six. Yeah. 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 Start at six. Huh? Start at six. Six to six to six to a thousand. Yeah. That's uh, two pages, two and a half pages typed out. So I have Susan's story, and I have Nancy's story. I do that, and those are the only two I have. But what? But Nancy, you told the story that day. You didn't write it. Okay. So now you're going to write. Where are the people who also? Well, you don't have to. You don't have to report yourself if you didn't. Yeah. I got one. Okay, so this is, it's eleven o'clock. Write the story, send it to me, and come next week. We have a. We're not in a hurry. It's not going to happen overnight, but I guarantee you, before you go to bed tonight, something would happen. Will happen that you could, if you if you you know perked it up and made it interesting to listen to. You'll be on some line that'll be too long, some bridge that will be too crowded. The punchline of all the stories is the line from um, "'Twas blind, but now I see,' which is really the ultimate Dharma story. I used to think that responding, whatever. All of a sudden, I saw how I was doing this and how I was handling this was not serving me well, and I did it the other way. And the Buddha would said, this is the hindrance of this arising, or this is the that arising. So see if you can write it and then say, the Buddha might have said, da 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 if you want to. Otherwise, we'll help you decide what the Buddha might have said. Do you love that idea? I think, I think it would be a great tonic, because I think we, we I, I, th- I thought about calling this book, We're All Buddhas. We're All Buddhas. Everybody can figure it out. We're all, we all can figure out how to do a life because we have. Yeah. We have. I, that's the other side of listening to everybody sharing their prayers. There's so much difficulty going on in the lives of the 50 or 60 people who are here. And yet we all got up this morning. We put on our shoes and socks. We drove cars. We came here. We greeted each other nicely. We listened. We laughed a few times. Human beings are amazing. We walk around with this pack of stuff, a mind full of grief and woe and worry and concern, and we're still nice, (laughs) and we care about other people. Isn't that true? I think we're amazing. It's a a great thing to be a human being. That the Buddha said. He said, in this whole world of different things that you can incarnate, to be a human being is the best possible realm because you have that room to develop your mind around the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 woes that befall you. It is 11 o'clock. Have a wonderful week. Write a story. <laughs> if you are new, come back next week and forever. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.